0: So a bit about the podcast, we've had a chronic bandwidth or capacity problem at Kawakibi Foundation and, you know, at the writing team that preceded Kawakibi Foundation. Ahmed and I had been operating as a writing team since late 2013. We've accumulated a lot of research, a lot of written content, dozens of drafts, even half-finished manuscripts, folders full of analysis, and a lot of it was really high quality, very timely for its time. But we never actually managed to surface it. Of course, a lot of a lot of this was because of events in my own life. Given that you know, in the middle of this work, I was exiled, jailed, expelled, and had to you know seek asylum, live in a refugee camp for a while. So it wasn't exactly as stable a stable few years for me, and uh, this has prevented us from getting into a productive uh, content pipeline. At the same time, we struggled to figure out a way to leverage the power of volunteers, because as the kind of work that we did, like there was this very big gap between the work that we're doing and the work that we're actually surfacing, this made it very difficult for us to integrate new volunteers because they're not familiar with everything else that we've been working on. So this is why we started thinking of this podcast. And we're starting with an anti-authoritarian podcast that we're calling simply the Arab Tyrant Manual this podcast is going to be part of a larger platform that we hope to launch in early 2018. And so this is a pilot episode. Uh, of course, I'm I'm pretty sure that we're going to make mistakes. I'm pretty sure that there will be things that are annoying. There are things that will be that not everyone would like. And I really hope that you communicate with us. Tell us what we did right. Tell us what we did wrong. Tell us what we, we should do more of, what we should do less of, etc. And if you think that you want to help us, please get in touch. We're actively looking for volunteers. So the podcast is an attempt at a solution to our chronic bandwidth problem. I hope that it allows us to publish content a lot more regularly and to rely upon something other than simply tweeting very hyper-summarized threads. And I hope also that, you know, as you know, Twitter is a very succinct medium so it's very easy to be misunderstood on it as well and i think one advantage of a podcast that would last you know half an hour to 40 minutes is that you can explain the context a lot more clearly and hopefully you know have less misunderstandings so hopefully this is going to help us surface more material more frequently have more conversations lower our own barrier to publishing since you know it's less formal Uh, And we hope to make it at least weekly. And we'll talk about current events. We'll talk about whatever we're working on or researching. And the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast is going to have a very specific focus. It's going to be anti-authoritarian. We're not going to only focus on the Arab world, but we're going to be looking at authoritarian tendencies across the world. But of course, given my own activism and our own background, I think we're going to be, maybe we'll be talking about the Middle East more frequently than that we're going to be speaking about other regions of the world. We're also going to regularly take questions and we're going to try to keep an ongoing discussion with everyone who comments about this conversation on social media. So reach out, tweet to us, we're listening. And we hope that you find this interesting. This is Iyad al-Baghdadi and Ahmad Gatnash. And this is the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast.
1: So there's a lot of really wildly diverging analysis on what's been happening in Saudi over the last couple of months and the last couple of weeks. Can you summarize what it is that Mohammed bin Salman is actually doing?
0: Well, Mohammed bin Salman, um, let's back up a little bit. The Saudi regime or the Saudi state is really suffering from a number of unsustainabilities which uh, have become more apparent, let's say, post-Arab Spring. They've always been there, but I think they've, uh, they've gotten to the point where it became very clear that uh, Saudi Arabia will have to transform if it is to survive. So MBS, or Mohammed bin Salman, is this young, uh, I believe, I think he's 32 years old. No, but I, I, don't think, I don't think it's been released when exactly he was born. He is the one who is kind of championing this transformation plan, which he called Vision 2030. And under Vision 2030, uh, Vision, what, what Vision 2030 basically did is, without so much saying, it acknowledged the fact that Saudi Arabia currently is on a very, very unsustainable path. We're talking economically, and we're talking socially, and we're talking politically as well. But, you know, like, that's something to expand upon.
1: So economically, because of the oil price crash of the last couple of years, and the fact that their entire budget depends on high oil prices, as well as the fact that the world is going to transition away from oil as the primary source of fuel over the next couple of decades. But why socially?
0: Well, socially speaking, uh, this is actually the social component is actually related. The social and political component are related to the economic unsustainability. So let's talk a little bit about the economic unsustainability. The economic unsustainability basically because this is a rentier state that has been addicted to oil, addicted to massive surpluses uh, from the oil market. Uh, and as you well know, there are certain socio-political consequences to have a, having a rentier state. One of them is that the relationship between the citizen and the government is kind of reversed. So you see, in a non-rentier state, it is the citizen who funds the government through taxation. And this creates this relationship of accountability. So because you are funding the government... And in a, in, a, you know, in a certain sense, you're, you're, you deserve uh, some level of accountability over how this, the, the government is using the funds. You're the boss. Uh, well, you're not exactly the boss. I mean, it is totally possible to be in a state which is a non-rencher state, which is still uh, uh, authoritarian and dictatorial. It is still possible. Uh, however, the dynamic in a rancher state is very, very lopsided because, in a sense, the government is not only your government it is also your employer it's also your literally your boss in a sense that a lot of the oil wealth was going towards paying salaries uh, or funding all different kind of schemes which end up funding a very large I i don't want to call it a welfare state it's not really a welfare state but more of
1: a very bloated bureaucracy let's say So you have dependency. Citizens depend on the government. You have a very large public sector, which is the primary actor in the economy.
0: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I don't know the the numbers when it comes to Saudi Arabia. I grew up in the United Arab Emirates, and I can tell you in the United Arab Emirates, the figures are that somewhere above 90% of all Emirati citizens, which are, you know, a minority in the population, I think over 90% of them end up working for the government or for semi-government companies, whereas over 90% of the people who work in the private sector are non-citizens. So this creates a situation where, again, there are a lot of, I mean, let's get back to the social consequences of this. If you want to talk about an economic transformation whereby you want to, as some reports have described it, wean the kingdom of oil, make the the economy more diversified, whereas he's looking into all those other assets and he wants to, what, what he wants to do really is make the government funded not just by oil, but by a lot of different industries and, you know, taxes. So in order for you to do that, in order to do this transformation, there is a social transformation that comes along with it. Because this means that the citizens who were used to getting everything from the government are now paying the government. Which means that you want to actually foster a more enterprising outlook towards business. You want a very active labor force. You want to increase employment. And because you want to increase uh, the labor force, you actually want to look into having not only males being employees, but also females. So you want to actually open up the job market and increase uh, opportunities for work by, you know, by also diversifying the economy, opening up sectors that were previously not so open, like entertainment, for example, and tourism. This itself basically has its own also social effects. Now, when it comes to the religious angle over here, which I think many people have have discussed, he's been saying things like that he wants to return Saudi Arabia to a more tolerant Islam. The fact is that religion has been used by the kingdom to extract legitimacy and obedience from the population for a very long time. The religious establishment was political in a sense that it was part of the ruling establishment, but also it was very useful for the regime uh, when it comes to establishing legitimacy. Now, what MBS wants to do here, or what he claims he wants to do, is to transform the, the Saudi kingdom from a renter state which uses religion for legitimacy into a post-religious state and a post rentier state or a post-oil state. This is the gist of it.
1: Okay, so he wants to create new sectors in the economy, like entertainment, private, more private companies, finance, etc. And he wants to get the other half of the labor force into work. And he wants to do all of this in order to wean the population off its dependence on the government and make it self-sufficient so that the government can instead depend on it for taxation. This is going to clash with the religious establishment who aren't going to be happy with the entertainment industry. They're not going to be happy with um, all of the things they've said for decades about women suddenly being completely contradicted and thrown out. What are they going to do?
0: The religious establishment, I mean, you're absolutely correct in the the sense that the religious establishment will not be happy about some of the social effects of this transformation. But also, I think the religious uh, establishment is going to see itself sidelined. Well, let's put it this way. The Saudi ruling establishment has known for a very long time that the religious establishment is actually, it's both an asset and a burden. And, you know, we can discuss that at length, but let's, let's just say at this point that it's gotten to the point that the Saudi ruling establishment, when it looks at the religious establishment and puts it on balance, it's starting to see it more as a liability than an asset. And it's trying to see, to see it as something that really needs to be curbed and really, really, really needs to be put in its place, such that uh, they can actually have more control over, you know, the whole point is that in order for you to actually create such a large transformation in society, over a very short period of time, you need as much control over society as possible. Uh, and for that, the whole purges that you see, the, uh, the, the, the arrests that you see, including arrests of people who are quite liberal and quite, you know, basically intellectuals, uh, religious reformers, it's really targeted at giving MBS a very singular degree of control over Saudi society in order to be able to, this is, this is a, again, I'm, I'm explaining his rationale, in order to actually achieve this kind of transformation.
1: So he's basically calculated the purges in order to shut down any kind of independent voice or any kind of independent power center so that there's nobody competing with him in the center to define the narrative and there's nobody competing with him for control. Whether that be independent economists, liberal theologians, intellectuals, activists, they're all being silenced and disappeared.
0: So let's back up a little bit and talk. There, there's, there's something to talk about when it comes to why the Saudi regime even needs a transformation plan and what, that's, what that means. The very fact that they need to implement a, a transformation plan means that they acknowledge their own unsustainability. Uh, and as I said, these unsustainabilities have been talked about for a very long time, but nobody dared to anything about them.
1: Yeah, they've been talking about Saudiization of the economy and less dependence on external labor for decades.
0: Uh, They've been talking about this for a very long time, but all of the measures have not been radical enough to actually make a a decisive difference. This is something actually which is not only found in Saudi Arabia, it's actually found across the Arab world. Uh, The fact that many Arab regimes are really unsustainable, the social contracts are unsustainable, and this is actually an acknowledgement. This was our thesis four years ago uh, when we said that the Arab social contract is unsustainable, and what happens here when the Saudi regime or when uh, a very powerful faction in the Saudi regime decides that we need to create this extremely risky and extremely radical transformation, and we, want, we have to do it within a, a few years. The very fact that he's saying this is actually an acknowledgement that, yes, the social contract of this country is fundamentally unsustainable. And I'm going to describe it this way, because this was not acknowledged that, yes, we need to do this because we're unsustainable, that acknowledgement was not done. It was more posed in in a sense that, oh, we need to get better. We're already great, but we need to get better. This kind of rhetoric, right? In fact, the analogy here is kind of like someone who says that, listen, I need to have a heart surgery, but it's cosmetic in nature. I don't really need it. I mean, you know, it's just better to have a heart surgery. The very fact that you need to have a heart surgery means that you know, if you don't have the surgery, you might die. So the very fact that they actually have to do this transformation is evidence enough that the social contract, the Saudi social contract, is unsustainable.
1: So he is embarking on these extremely wide-reaching reforms which touch every corner of Saudi society, from economic life to social life to political life. And ordinarily, with a reform this big, you'd expect it to happen very carefully over a period of time, and you'd expect a very broad-based coalition of support around it in order to make sure that it happens successfully. But what's happening in Saudi Arabia is actually the opposite. Instead of building a consensus and being open about what's happening and creating some kind of legitimacy through popular buy-in with the reforms, he's actually silencing any kind of, not even a dissenting voice, a potentially dissenting voice.
0: Uh, Well, I believe it was uh, de Tocqueville who once said that the most dangerous moment for a bad regime is when it starts to reform, uh, and I think we're seeing what we're seeing here is that you're absolutely right, of course, that the way to actually carry out this kind of radical transformation, you need a very wide social consensus. You need to actually bring everyone together behind this and say, "Listen, we are in one boat, and we, and you know, the boat is sinking, and we need to save it. We need to do what is necessary to save this boat before it sinks." There is something very important about this transformation, though, which is that even though transforming from, uh, you know, from the current situation to a post-religious, post-oil state has very deep political ramifications. What doesn't appear on the Saudi 2030 vision is any kind of political reform. What MBS is trying to do over here, really the, the plan here, as it, as it appears to me, is to create this enormous transformation without opening political rights, without giving any political rights. In other words, to, to take Saudi Arabia as it is right now and, and you know, transform it into something like, let's say, Dubai, uh, a neoliberal economy, diversified economy, active job market, a tourism sector, an entertainment sector, but no political rights.
1: I believe some quite famous upheavals have occurred in history over the concept of um, taxation without political representation.
0: That was actually uh, uh, one of the slogans of the American Revolution no taxation without representation. And actually, it was also a hashtag in the Saudi Twitter sphere a year ago, or more than a year ago. Uh, no taxation without representation, of course, in Arabic. In Arabic, it was.
1: And somebody came up with that knowing the reference it made, or, or was this very organic?
0: I believe that the person who came up with the uh, with the hashtag was was a Saudi student who's I think studying other in Canada or in the United States. So it, it's not completely correct when we say that Saudi Arabia and the Saudi Arabian population are completely depoliticized, even though a rentier state creates this kind of depoliticization of the of the population. But as you know, since uh, it was it was actually the late King Abdullah who actually instituted this plan, where a lot of Saudi young people are actually going to the West for education. And when they're in the West, of course, they're still Saudis, they're still committed to their country, but they're also opening up and, you know, learning a lot about, you know, different different cultures, different government structures, different types of government, etc. So there is this kind of interchange of ideas. So there is more political maturity or more political awareness among a younger generation than perhaps the generation
1: that preceded it. Okay, so it's a massive power centralization and a massive social change at great risk. What are the risks? What could go wrong if he fails?
0: Gosh, well, the the problem here is that, uh, as we said, he's actually trying to do this without opening up any political rights.
1: Okay, we'll get back to risk. But first, how can he do that? In his plan to modernize Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman didn't include anything to do with political rights. No participation in decision-making, no loosening of restrictions on free speech, no democratization. How can he get away with this?
0: People who study authoritarian regimes and they study their tactics, one thing they do and one thing they're really good at is depoliticization tactics. And depoliticization tactics are tactics to distract the population from their own political rights. Now, some of this involves nationalism or populism, where you actually incite the population towards external conflicts like the one with Qatar or the one in Yemen or the current one with Lebanon. But also there could be more entertainment, more job options, etc., where people actually feel like, you know, life is not so bad over here because we, you know, we have cinema theaters where we didn't have any before. We have an entertainment sector that we didn't have before. We have better job prospects. Of course, there's, 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 there's a question mark on over that. Uh, and, you know, there is this threat. There's this external threat. We're, we're f- covered by threats from everywhere. Yemen, uh, Qatar, slash the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, Hezbollah, etc. So I'm going to predict that we're going to see a lot of these depoliticization tactics being used, and they're already being used.
1: So it's uh, back to a phrase from, the, from a Roman author, um, bread and circuses. Um, what you need to keep the population entertained, only now um, the population buy their own bread. Um, they're going to be allowed cinemas. And the hope is that that will keep everyone quiet.
0: Well, in Rome, you had bread and circuses because you actually had free bread. In Saudi Arabia, you're not going to have bread and circuses, just circuses. Uh, while you're actually taking away the bread, you're taking away the bread and giving, giving them circuses, in other words.
1: And hoping that they can make uh, their own bread.
0: Yeah, hoping that they can see the, the value in a more, uh, you know, more diversified economy. Now, the thing is, someone who actually listened to this entire introduction might actually come up with a very optimistic vision and a very sympathetic view of MBS. The problem is that MBS is a dictator. He is reckless, he is rash, he is authoritarian. He does not want to give the Saudi people any political rights. And whatever political rights he's, he's, tri- he's, he's given, uh, whatever token rights is given, like for example, allowing women to drive, it's been Kind of like, I give you a right, and at the same time, I control you. Uh, so for example, this is information which, it's not exactly private information, but you know, I, I was working on a project which I guess I wouldn't be able to reveal at this point, but it involved a lot of uh, communication with many Saudi activists. And it was clear to me that right after, I'm, ta- I'm talking about Saudi women activists, it was clear to me that right after... The decision to allow women to drive, there was a tightening of the security space around those, the same women activists who won the right to drive. They were not allowed. They, they actually received threats. They were not allowed to do any speeches. They're not allowed to go on the media. Many of them have not tweeted since, especially the more prominent ones. You know, they're, they're basically they've been threatened. And the idea here is to represent those rights that are being given after a very long struggle as things that the government is giving you and you have to be
1: they are gifts from a benevolent king not something you won with your hard-fought activism and you should shut up and be grateful and not ask for any more
0: exactly and uh, it's also it's also the fact that they don't want to encourage more activism because if this is posed as a result of activism then that incentivizes more activism and they don't want that
1: that's quite terrifying especially when you look at the fact that the western press has been you know over the moon and lauding these reforms and celebrating you know, how great a progressive Mohammed bin Salman is, and how wonderful future Saudi Arabia is, when in fact, um, most of these activists who protested for these rights for years, if not decades, are now t- unable to even tweet many of them.
0: There is a war on dissent. There's a war on any independent voice in the country uh, because MBS wants to be the only actor, the only actor, the only one who gives, who, who furnishes opinion. For example, Uh, Isam al Zamil, who's a brilliant economist and someone who's, you know, I have have the highest respect for him. He's in jail right now because he issued his own impartial, very objective analysis of the economic aspect of Vision 2030, saying that he sees glaring problems with the plan. Another person in jail is, for example, Hassan Farhan al Maliki, who's again, despite my disagreement with him on, on, on certain political positions, he happens to be an extremely insightful and extremely intelligent man who has been for years offering this inside critique of Wahhabism at a very, very basic epistemological level, which I found very inspiring. He's, uh, he's basically a Muslim reformer. So these are the people who are in jail. So MBS wants to transform the economy, but he's putting Saudi economists in jail. He wants to transform uh, you know, the religious aspect, the religious uh, dynamic, but he's putting religious reformers in jail. Not to mention, of course, the political reformers who are in jail, the women's rights activists who are silenced. Thankfully, he didn't put them in jail, but you know they're basically being threatened by that. And he's the latest. The latest stunt he pulled has basically put a lot of his own cousins and his own family and the, the princes, etc., in, in you know in detention. Of course, wasn't jail, but it was the Ritz-Carlton.
1: And the claim is that this is about corruption.
0: Well, the claim, of course, is that it's corruption, and of course, this is. First of all, when I first heard the news, I thought, oh, this is smart, because the word corruption is part of the language of reform in the Arab world. Arab people, when they want to speak about reform, most of of the time they don't actually use the word democracy. They talk about citizenship, they talk about human rights or rights in general hukuk, or they talk about corruption, fasad. Uh, So definitely it has some popular or populist appeal when you talk about corruption. So that was, my first th- that was my first impression. I thought, you know, that's something which is admirable. But when I saw what he actually did was round up a lot of his political opponents, a lot of people who are, including, you know, like very powerful men, including people who used to be the crown prince before him, uh, and putting them, you know, detaining them in the Red Carlton, which is, again, a very, very bizarre move. If you want to inspire confidence in your country and you want to inspire other countries, you know, you want you want to actually invite kind of an entertainment uh, revolution and you want to bring a lot of those international hotel chains to your country. And then you take the best hotel in the country and turn it into a detention center. It's bizarre and, and, and very reckless, I must say.
1: Uh, well, I've been watching Western economic leaders sort of line up to get in on the action. I think Richard Branson was there a few weeks ago. I saw the CEO of Goldman Sachs. Um, tweet about taking a trip there it wouldn't really fill me with confidence to see uh, Mohammed bin Salman announce a new anti-corruption committee that he is going to be the head of so it's not independent and then in the same night arrests of dozens of figures including the founders and CEOs of the three biggest Arab TV channels excluding Al Jazeera and then also announcing that he's going to confiscate their wealth which is billions of dollars.
0: Well, well, there's there's three points that I'd like to comment upon when it comes to this. First of all, the angle about uh, the fact that he targeted media channels in particular, which is, I think, very interesting and, you know, very telling. Then there's the, f- the, the point about there's a, a certain, I think there, there's a certain shift of attitude in uh, Western capitals towards MBS after the recent move. Uh, and I think many people are actually starting to see him not as this brilliant reformer, but as but rather as uh, a destabilizing figure.
1: Well, you'd have to still you'd have to be an idiot to still think he's some kind of Jeffersonian Democrat.
0: So there's three things to comment upon. First of all, I think there is a shift of attitude in Western capitals towards MBS after the recent move. I think uh, most independent observers did not see this as an anti-corruption drive. They saw it as a power consolidation and a risky and destabilizing one at that. Uh, It was a very risky gambit, and I think he really did do damage to his own image.
1: It's hard to um, sell yourself as being on an anti-corruption drive when you're 32 years old and you recently bought a $550 million yacht. I mean, either he built a tech unicorn in his 20s without telling anyone, or he has some ill-gotten wealth himself.
0: Uh, Well, this this is the whole point here. I mean, when we talk about corruption, how do you even define corruption in a regime like Saudi Arabia's? I mean, in order for you to even talk about corruption, in order for you to even talk about uh, establishing an anti corruption committee, you need a, a number of things. First of all, you need a very transparent economy, you need a very transparent government, uh, you need an independent judiciary, uh, you need, you know, independent rule of law. And, and none, of, none of this exists in the, in the kingdom at, at the moment. So even I don't even know what it means to speak about corruption in a Saudi regime context. Uh, it, it seems uh, really bizarre and it seems that I, I don't think enough people are actually looking at this critically.
1: Officially, there seems to be no separation between what is the country's wealth and what is the royal family's wealth. Both come from the oil. Um, it's not clear officially which of the two the oil belongs to. We know that as of a couple of years ago, there were over 5,000 members of the royal family who were receiving oil money.
0: Well, as, as you mentioned yourself, uh, MBS himself recently bought a $550 million yacht. Uh, and this was in 2015, I think. And it, it, if you read the story, it's almost as, at a whim. So, you know, people don't walk around with that much money in their pocket. This is definitely, you know, he, he's a 30-year-old. At the time, he was 30 years old. So again, I mean if he's actually accusing them of pilfering uh, uh, public money then you know he's 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 not innocent of that himself.
1: He needs to hand himself in. But of course it's difficult for us in the Arab world to see through this because there's such a low level of political maturity. We're not used to um being able to interrogate announcements made by the government and ask about the independence of um, quasi-governmental organs which are overseeing things like anti-corruption drives.
0: Uh, well, I actually tweeted this uh, uh, maybe a week ago. I said that you know the level of political maturity in a lot of Gulf countries remains very low. Uh, and I kind of regret tweeting that because I don't think it's completely fair. I, I, I do believe that the level of political maturity uh, needs, to, needs to increase a lot, uh, but, at the same time, we have to keep in mind that we're only hearing we 're only hearing one voice we 're only hearing those who agree with the government because everyone else is silent. Uh, so it might well be that there is a lot of people who know exactly what 's happening and they're not you know they 're not convinced with this, but you never hear their voice and so we only hear one side and we think that that si- side is representative and it might not be. Uh, however, I want to return to the point that um, when it comes to the arrests the arrest included the heads of the three largest television channels in Saudi Arabia. That's NBC Al Arabiya and Rotana. Um, and this again seems very much uh, targeted and intentional. Um, and it seems it seems to really reinforce the idea that MBS is trying to gain this singular control uh, over the narrative, over over uh, you know to be the, the the only voice that can actually. Uh, uh, speak on behalf of the people or behalf of Saudi Arabia or behalf of the, uh, behalf of society.
1: He wants to control even which ideas are discussed, which ideas are heard.
0: Well, he, he wants to make sure that he is not challenged on any of the points that he's trying to do. Now, this is, of course, incredibly risky. I'm, I'm a startup consultant by, by profession. I mean, I'm a career entrepreneur. And one of the things that we learn very fast when it comes to entrepreneurship and when it comes to doing new things or starting startups is that you always failure is always part of the process and because it's part of the process you actually plan for failure sometimes you invite failure in order to learn very quickly one of our motives is fail forward fast so the thing is in order to, to execute such a risky maneuver you need the buy-in, you need as much buy-in as possible because there will be failures, there will be mistakes. And you need to be able to go back to your constituents and say, hey, uh, we made some mistakes, but we, we were trying our best, we did our best, uh, mistakes happen, and these mistakes are going to be part of a learning process in order for us to achieve this, uh, this transformation. And we're going to be very open with everyone and we're going to say, you know, uh, we're, going to, we're, we're, we're going to keep trying and we, we need your support. Uh, in order for you to actually implement this kind of very deep transformation uh especially if it is something which is as you say very good for everyone uh then definitely you need you need to build consensus and that's that's definitely not what has been uh taking place right now
1: Well, we see that mistakes happen in even the most mature of democracies in the u k last year the government made several um very widely publicised and even embarrassing u-turns over some planned reforms um, to welfare and benefits. Um, after you know the scale of problems in in the idea was pointed out by independent institutions and economic analysts, um, the the problem was averted because they suspended the scheme. But in a situation like this, you're basically silencing everybody who is capable, or educated enough, or experienced enough to point out where there might be errors um like we mentioned Islam al is an economist who's um what in his late 20s early 30s um he's um he's been on trade delegations around the world with um the, the Saudi government um donating his expertise um by all accounts he's exactly the kind of guy that the new Saudi Arabia should be depending on and yet he's he's in jail You mentioned the risk. Um, There was a headline recently which basically said um, Mohammed bin Salman is gambling the future of of Saudi Arabia on a desert city. Knowing that startups and even established companies fail quite often when they embark on wide-reaching change initiatives or large projects, that sounds quite risky to, to gamble the entire future of Saudi Arabia on a city in the desert.
0: Yeah, so the city that's, uh, that's been declared is called Neom, and it's supposed to be located in the northwestern corner of Saudi Arabia, uh, which is very close to Egypt, it's very close to Jordan, and it's also very close to Israel uh, and the Palestinian territories. It's basically on the Red Sea. Uh, And it's supposed to be this very high-tech city, which which basically came up with a lot of fanfare. Some people were even commenting and saying that this is going to be a turning point in the history of humanity. Robots and uh, artificial islands and stuff like that. I want to say something that might seem a little provocative here. This seems very, very familiar to me as someone who has lived in the United Arab Emirates and seen Dubai achieve a kind of transformation successfully since the the early 2000s. And yes, it ended up with a financial crisis, but Dubai actually successfully transformed uh, its economy to economy which is focused more on tourism and and business, uh, and successfully reduces dependence upon oil. So it seems to me that I can almost see what's uh, what's in the works here: invite a lot of foreign capital. It's also going to be inviting a lot of foreign labor, provide employment opportunities to a lot of young Saudis, but also you know create this massive real estate boom which invites a lot of speculation, invites a lot of foreign money into the country. A lot of technology startups, some of them uh, legitimate and some of them, you know...
1: Visa schemes?
0: Uh, Yeah, I mean, some legitimate and some sketchy. The problem here is that it seems that they're approaching this transformation as if it's something that can be bought. I almost think about it as an intellectually stunted approach to transformation where you think you can actually buy things. You can buy the louver. Instead of creating a cultural revolution by allowing free speech and inviting thinkers and creating this flowering of culture where you allow people to to speak their minds and create culture because culture is eventually created by by people. Instead of doing that, you actually simply pay a a couple hundred million uh, dollars and get an international museum in your backyard and that's you buying a cultural revolution of some sorts the whole attitude here is i find it very intellectually standard to be honest
1: so why are they doing this
0: Well, a feature of failing paradigms is that you know when when, when you're within a paradigm the paradigm is no longer working because the context around it has shifted and you have diminishing returns One feature of failing paradigms is this obsessive nature. People who are still committed to the paradigm, they start to obsessively double down on the things that didn't work. Because these things used to work, and now they don't, but they basically double down and try to do more. So, you know, we built the biggest tower in the world. Let's double that down. Let's actually build the tower that's twice as big. We made, you know, artificial islands. Let's make make an even bigger one.
1: And then wondering why it's not working and why your economy is actually stagnating rather than taking off.
0: Yeah, because often, often what happens really is that they double down on the very things that are causing the problem. It's a paradigmatic problem. And I think previously on, on my Twitter account, I defined a paradigmatic problem as a problem which arises from the very paradigm in which you are trying to solve it. So it's kind of like you're trying to pull a rug while you're sitting on top of the rug, or you're trying to push over a box while you're sitting inside the box. So you can't really solve the problem without abandoning the paradigm from which, you know, from which you're proceeding. And this is the problem that we have over here. This is still an authoritarian, autocratic paradigm, trying to achieve this very tremendous and necessary transformation without opening up any kind of political rights while imprisoning people who have, who have an opinion and assuming that by transforming, you're actually not really transformed to a post renter state, but you're simply collecting a different kind of rent. So instead of collecting oil rent, you're kind of uh, transforming this into kind of a real estate or international investment or, you know, foreign direct investment kind of rent. It's still kind of a rentier state in the end. The difference being an oil state at least has some measure of control over its revenues. Meanwhile, the moment you start to float your your economy on the market, I think there's even talk about floating the rial, the Saudi uh, currency, the moment you do that and you start to be dependent, you you kind of integrate with the rest of the world, with the rest of, with the with the world economy, at a level which makes it very risky because you are open to any kind of volatility that happens ar- around you. But what I what I want to really point to, to is they're trying to do this, which is appeal to nationalism, you know, like Saudi nationalism versus uh, you know uh, the Houthis or versus Hezbollah, or even versus Qatar. At a time when around the world, of course, there is a rise of ethnic nationalism everywhere, but also there is a certain feeling that the ethnic national paradigm itself is really on its last leg. Uh, At the same time, they're trying to really build the next big, huge, neoliberal city at the time when the neoliberal paradigm itself is being questioned. It's kind of like they're trying to build this right at the precipice of another paradigm shift.
1: So you said that opening up a country... To be integrated with the economic system in this way has its benefits and its risks because once you're integrated with the global economy, you're going to be hurt by stuff which hurts the global economy. You're no longer separate and independent. When there's a downturn in the US economy, that's going to affect you. When the Chinese housing bubble pops, that's going to affect investment in, in your economy. And that's what Saudi Arabia is opening itself up to. But when that does happen there is only going to be one person responsible because he's basically ensured that there are no other actors even to share responsibility and blame with him.
0: Well, that's exactly right. I think uh, there's two levels of risk over here, or maybe even there are multiple levels of risk. But, you know, there are risks which are associated with the transformation plan itself. Meaning, even if you implement this transformation plan in the best possible way, you open it up to, you try to build a consensus, you involve the average citizens into it, you, you, you know, open up a little bit more political rights, etc. Even if you do it, you do everything right, there are risks. And one of those risks, as, as we mentioned, is, you know, any kind of failure, economic downturn, etc. However, there are additional risks associated simply with the way that MBS has been going about his plan. MBS is kind of like you know you know like we talk a lot on uh, in our projects about populism and we talk about the populist narrative and the populist narrative is kind of like we're going to become great again uh, and in order for us to do that we have to regain our sovereignty and the people who are stealing our sovereignty are basically foreigners and traitors or you know people within our society who are you know uh, negative influences in a way MBS is championing a certain kind of populism without really using the narrative. So, you know, the internal enemies are the quote-unquote extremists and Islamists, and the external enemy is, of course, Iran and Hezbollah and Qatar.
1: So he has um, external enemies. What about his um, external allies? That's something that people have been speculating about a lot, how his relationships are, especially with the Trump administration.
0: Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, it's certainly an aspect which, uh, you know, any news that involves Trump gets amplified nowadays. And I think it's very clear that Donald Trump likes fanfare. He, He likes to be buttered up and he likes to be flattered
1: a lot. And nobody has done that better than the Saudis now.
0: Nobody has done better than the Saudis until the Chinese. And you've seen that, you know, he just had a visit and the Chinese definitely tried to wow him and tried to woo him. Successfully, I must say
1: they couldn't give him a sword dance though uh,
0: no no sword dance around this time and no no orb also uh you know that that weird little orb with him and Cece and uh and the and the saudi king
1: oh yeah if if there's no orb it's not true love
0: yeah however i think that donald trump is a known quantity and donald trump prides himself on being the deal maker the guy who always gets the best deal and does not do anything for free he always it's always is always, I'll give you something, but you have to give me something too. Uh, He doesn't do free favors. So the fact that he has been so supportive of MBS, to the frustration of Trump's own administration, I think even the uh, Department of State, etc., I think it points to the fact that there is a certain kind of economic deal that has not been revealed. It might be that MBS has offered to do the IPO for Aramco quoted as the biggest IPO in history, $2 trillion. Of course, Issam Zamel, I think, is in jail because he actually pointed out that there is no way Aramco is worth $2 trillion. But, you know, maybe he convinced uh, Trump that it is actually worth that much. And he said, you know what, we're going to float this in the New York Stock Exchange or something like that. It might also be, as you know, Donald Trump is actually a real estate guy. He's a real estate developer. And I'm pretty sure that if there's going to be an enormous new city, which is, you know, based upon um, entertainment industry and tourism, etc., I'm pretty sure Trump was going to be interested in investing in that as well.
1: So about this um, this new city with the entertainment industry and all of the things which sound very uh, UAE, they sound very Emirati, and we've mentioned that it looks like Mohammed bin Zayed has had, the ruler of uh, the UAE, has had a big hand in these plans. People could argue that the UAE has done pretty well out of that. They have a very high GDP. Um, they have a very developed economy. The people are happy. Everything is good. Uh, what's wrong if Saudi goes in that direction?
0: Uh, well, there's that's there's an the, the excellent question, but uh,
1: obviously, I'm saying this to the guy who got jailed and expelled without any kind <laughs> of trial or du- due process. So, um, uh,
0: the fact is that the United Arab Emirates is, is a different country in that regards. The United Arab Emirates is, has a very small native population. So, we're talking about maybe a million, maybe a a little bit over a million citizens. And if you divide, I mean, and again, the United Arab Emirates sovereign wealth fund is, is actually among the richest in the world. And it's been doing very, very well. I mean, they actually manage their oil wealth very, very well. So, keep in mind also that when we talk about Dubai, Dubai and Abu Dhabi are kind of two models over here. And they don't completely, I mean, they work together, but actually, Dubai's economy is based upon very different premises than Abu Dhabi's economy. Abu Dhabi's economy is still a renter state, and it's still very much dependent upon oil. Dubai is this uh, very interesting model over here, but in the end, Abu Dhabi is the one that's running the show at the moment. The population of the United Arab Emirates is a million people. The citizenship, of course, it's 10 million people overall, but citizenship is a, is, a, is a million people, or about a million people, whereby in Saudi Arabia, I believe it's 27 million. And at the same time, they're running out of money, So there is an urgency in Saudi Arabia, which is definitely not there in in the United Arab Emirates.
1: The Saudi population right now is 32 million, compared with just over 9 million in the UAE. The breakdown of that, 67% of the population in Saudi Arabia are citizens. So two-thirds versus only one-third non-citizens. In the UAE, it's actually 12% who are citizens.
0: I think it's it's 10% now. I think it's because the, the proportion is actually getting even more out of whack
1: forecasts say that the UAE will be 96% non-citizens by 2050. So the UAE is different in that they have a very small population and a very large sovereign wealth fund, um, so they can afford to pay these massive amounts of money to build this kind of system. In Saudi Arabia, you have a much larger population and at the same time um, a much more stressed budget and greatly depleted foreign reserves in the last couple of years they're not in the same position of being able to pay out massive amounts of money to build this neoliberal paradise.
0: Yeah, it's com- it's absolutely right that the United Arab Emirates can kick the can further down the road because they have a lot of road, uh, while Saudi Arabia, you know, they kind of kick the can down the road and then they're they're running out of road. The transformation is, is really an emergency or an urgency. However, I think it's also important to note that uh, Saudi society has been a lot more conservative and a lot more closed than Emirati society. So in the UAE, uh, women can drive. Uh, women are, you know, a very, very visible part of, of the workforce. And you know, basically, it's it's a more socia- socially liberal country than than uh, than Saudi Arabia overall. Which is why the distance they have to travel in order to transform is much smaller than Saudi Arabia.
1: Uh, because in the UAE, this transformation started two generations ago, didn't it?
0: You could actually argue that it started. Um, in the 1970s, Sheikh Zayed was definitely no Democrat, but he was very supportive of, uh, of women's rights. He uh, was very supportive of women in the workforce. The UAE you know, made tremendous leaps when it comes to uh, human development overall over the past four decades.
1: So going back to the risks of um, what Mohammed bin Salman is doing, obviously there's a lot of speculation going on. Um, about what kind of pressures he's facing internally. Um, We saw popular protests for the first time that people can remember in the wake of 2011 and the Arab Spring. That was bought off by increasing salaries and giving bonuses, which is something that's uh, unsustainable now because of the budget pressures. There's also speculation that large chunks of the royal family are feeling disenchanted by him. Speculation about uh, people planning a coup. What would you say to that?
0: Uh, well, when it comes to popular protests, I think they were very, very limited in Saudi Arabia. Of course, there there were some protests, but I think they were very limited. Uh, the most visible avenue for dissent in Saudi Arabia was the was social media, and I I even remember at some point when people like people were actually tweeting this out, you know, basically ruminating and saying that you know we can't go in the streets, so we go on Twitter. Um, so so that's one factor. Um, however, you're completely r- you're completely correct when you say that the risks are piling up. Because keep in mind that when you silence all the opposition and you say, I want, I've got this, I'm going to do this, then you own it. It's yours. You're the only one who's going to be blamed if any mistake happens. At the same time, the way that you're actually doing it, you're actually multiplying your internal and external enemies. So recently they've, they've, you know, they've added Lebanon to the list of uh, their external enemies uh, inexplicably. And, you know, creating a lot of enemies within, because, you know, when it comes to these very, very powerful people, what are you going to do? You're not going to kill them. You're not going to put them in jail for a very, very long time. I think that's politically very, very dangerous. I I don't think it's possible. So what's going to happen next? They're going to hold a grudge against you for a very, very long time, and they're going to be plotting against you for sure. So what you've done eventually is really increase the degree of political risk in a very precipitous way. So, so there is a further um, risk, I would say, which is popular pressure. And I think this has not happened so far because he kind of has a lid on uh, any voices in society, making sure that you know nobody else can speak. The question is, how long can it last? And what's the side effects of that? And what happens here? I mean, a lot of people, keep in mind that a lot of people are silent uh, because they kind of want to watch. They want to see, OK, what's going to happen now? Maybe something good is going to come out of this. And it's completely understandable. The question is, how sustainable is that?
1: The risk of silencing all of the voices is you don't see the warning signs. Um, when something does happen, it will come out of nowhere and blindside you.
0: Exactly. And this is why, I mean, this is one of the strongest arguments for free speech, which is that you allow dissenting voices so that you can, they, can cr- they can act as a check on your own uh, decision-making. It's not something that's supposed to be negative. It is adversarial, competitive, in a sense that different voices are competing to have their way. But in the end, we we kind of uh, understand that the result of that is better decision making. I would say that it seems that MBS is trying to do precision moves at the edge of a precipice while holding a pressure cooker and while the earth shakes under him. And he thinks that he has the popularity and he has the genius and the international legitimacy and the appropriate foreign relations and the money to do it. The question is, how lucky is he going to be to do this without slipping up or making a single mistake? I think that the probability of that is very 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 low.
1: Well, Mohammed bin Salman uh, follows in a very long established fine tradition of Arab tyranny. The kind of purge that he's just run is very reminiscent of Gamal Abdel Nasser, Anwar Sadat, Saddam Hussein, Muammar Gaddafi. Um, you know, it's, it's absolutely nothing new to the Arab world.
0: Well, it it's always leads to more power consolidation. And it always leads to, unfortunately, more tyranny. And uh, society suffers in the end. Of course, the context over here is markedly different because uh, he's, he was, he's saying that, listen, I acknowledge that we need to transform because uh, you know, we're currently unsustainable. And that was not exactly the context in the case of, for example, Gaddafi or uh, Saddam Hussein. But it definitely is reminiscent of that. Corruption is used as kind of a grand justifier of going after political enemies.
1: So this all basically started several years ago, maybe around 2010, 2011, when the U.S. started following a markedly different tack with the Middle East. Um, It was shortly after the Arab Spring broke out. There were popular demands for democracy and liberty across the region. And in the midst of this, Obama decides the U.S. should no longer engage with this region. It's a lost cause. There's no hope. These Arabs are never going to do anything good with the, with, the, with their countries. And basically, let's pull out. And his thinking is um, illustrated in a really insightful piece by Jeffrey Goldberg in the Atlantic magazine called The Obama Doctrine. He basically gave a very Orientalist view of the Arab world and said, nothing is going on here. These people are beyond hope. Pull out and let them, you know, wallow in their terrorism and tyranny forever. Um, we have better things to do. And of course, he pulled out at the exact moment that the Arab world was clamoring for freedom, and when he pulled out everything changed
0: i, I would I would actually place it maybe around twenty twelve when he 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 became very exasperated uh with the actors in the region, and he felt that uh i think i think he simply did not believe anymore in uh American power and american influence uh and perhaps he didn't really believe in the ability of the Arab Spring movements to, to do anything, anything of a lasting transformation. And I think at that point, there was a shift in attitude. This was around the same time as there was a lot more rapprochement with, with the Iranian regime and, you know, basically culminating in the Iran deal. So there was a lot of frustration in Arab capitals at that time because the United States was this unconditional ally to a lot of those Gulf states, especially the Gulf states. And now Obama was kind of like re-evaluating, saying that, you know, uh, maybe we shouldn't be completely unconditional. Maybe you should pick up the slack. Maybe you should solve a lot of, you know, more of your own problems. The problem here is that when you vacate the space and you say, hey, you handle your own, your own problems, who are the agents that you're actually asking to handle your or their own problems? They're not exactly mature, responsible uh, agents. They themselves are autocrats mostly concerned with their own power. And when it comes to them handling the problem, they're going to handle it in the worst possible way. And the, the resulting vacuum is going to attract all kinds of different, you know, actors, including, for example, ISIS, including Iranian expansionism, including Putin. And we can see the mess over here.
1: Trying to think of an appropriate analogy, I was going to say the teacher steps out of the room and you know, the children took over the class.
0: Imagine you have this teacher who's, uh, you know, he's in the classroom and he basically tells everyone what to do. And then he steps out and he's like, you know what? I, I give up. Uh, you handle your own, you know, you handle it. You handle the rest of this. And what happens over there is that, you know, the the entire classroom becomes a complete mess. And you have all those different, uh, different kind of agents, you know, coming in.
1: You basically have Lord of the Flies. Yeah. So you have... Um Saudi Arabia in the corner, sitting on top of Yemen, punching it repeatedly in the face for no reason. Iran just decided to take over three other people's desks. What else happened?
0: Well, I mean, I want to bring it back to MBS's own uh, uh, actions over here. The fact is that MBS, there's a certain pattern to his foreign policy gambits, or his gambits overall, let me say, which is that they start with a lot of fanfare, and they start with a lot of promises of being something which is swift, and decisive and they end up degrading into a stalemate. So when it comes to the war in Yemen for example and I think uh, the war in Yemen I think started uh, I believe it was March uh, 2015. Of course it was it was called Asifat Al-Hazm. How do you translate Al-Asifat ha- Al-Hazm? The storm of decision.
1: Operation Decisive Storm.
0: So it's supposed to be something which is swift and decisive and within a month they actually declare that hey we're going to end the you know it's the end of uh, Decisive Storm and the start of Operation Hope or something like that
1: mission accomplished.
0: And so what happened after that is they continued to bomb Yemen until present day. I mean, it was not decisive at all. It became a stalemate uh, and became a stalemate which is not only costing a lot of Yemeni lives, but also bleeding Saudi Arabian legitimacy around the world or its image around the world. Same thing comes with Qatar. They wanted it to be something which is swift. We're going to, you know, we're going to blockade Qatar and Qatar is going to come to its knees very, very soon. But again, very quickly, it becomes, you know, a stalemate. And, uh, we have no idea how far it's going to go. But again, dictators always know how to use crisis because they create crisis and then they use those crises for their own benefit. Uh, and I remember this started in 2015 when anyone who's protesting against the war in Yemen ends up in jail. And then anyone who's protesting the blockade of Qatar ends up in jail. Uh, and now, of course, we have this, uh, this situation where they actually, you know, he actually creates this other kind of crisis with Lebanon. And we have no idea how it's going to end. But if we go by his previous gambits, then we're going to expect it again to devolve into a stalemate.
1: And this is happening at a time when Saudi Arabia has no cash to spare, but estimates have been that the war is costing them $3 million per day, $90 million a month. That doesn't really reinforce the idea of Mohammed bin Salman as a responsible ruler.
0: And it's also, whenever you have this kind of, you don't have a lot of money, you can't really afford to keep spending millions. Definitely, you don't want a stalemate. You actually do want something that's decisive and quick. But obviously, this has not been the outcome.
1: Unless you have very different intentions, and the true intention of the war is actually as a tool to prop up nationalistic sentiment and have people waving flags and cheering rather than thinking about their own economic problems.
0: Well, that was, that was very clear, I believe, from the time the, the, the war in Yemen started. There was this flare-up of jingoistic and chauvinistic nationalism very, very publicly, everywhere. And anyone who doesn't get swept in it is basically looked upon in suspicion. So definitely, there's definitely a factor at play.
1: There were people arrested for refusing to support it, weren't there? Or refusing to vocally tweet in, in support? I
0: believe so. But I think I think that it was more, uh, perhaps the more damaging uh, um, uh, incident was the one with Qatar, where um the conflict you know Qatar is a gulf state and the gulf states have uh have been integrated with each other for for decades uh there's you know some tribes some some tribes basically uh show up sorry some uh, uh many of the borders between Saudi be- sorry many of the borders between gulf states cross tribal uh uh lines so you can actually see the members of the same tribe actually uh, actually live in three or four or or more than. Uh, or, uh, so you see that some members of of certain tribes actually live across the Gulf states. Um, so it's really dangerous when the rhetoric between Qatar and uh, the rest of the Gulf uh, the rest. Uh, so it's re- really dangerous when the rhetoric between Qatar and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates devolves into a level of uh, uh, really I don't know how to describe it, but. Uh,
1: um, it's been very crude, very
0: crude, very crass, um, and you know, abusive. abusive. Le- get, getting to levels that, that are really, uh, really immature in an, in any other context. Uh, and when any you know, when people protested that and said, "Hey, listen, we're still we're still neighbors, we're still brothers, we're still one people in the end, etc." They end up in jail. And this was, I think, very, very dangerous, a very dangerous precedent, because over here, what you're doing really is uh, demonstrating very clearly that the people are more mature than their own government. The people are are, are uh, have better manners and better morals than their own government.
1: The extent it reached was, um, at one stage, there was a rumor, I think, that... Um the emir of kuwait had brokered some kind of truce or there had been a phone call between the the leadership of qatar and saudi and uh, sheikh salman al-awda who is a very prominent um uh cleric who is um he has reformist tendencies especially politically but he basically tweeted in response to this um may god guide us towards reconciliation and peace and he was arrested for that.
0: Yeah, I mean, Salman al awda is a very popular Sunni cleric, and he has his own baggage because, you know, he was part of the Sahwa movement, which is this populist, uh, you know, kind of a Sunni populist movement uh, from the 1990s. Uh, so he def- definitely has some of that baggage. But, you know, in recent years, he has been taking uh, a different direction towards a more maybe a rights-oriented uh, kind of uh, 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 perspective. Uh, and he was very, you know, very uh, sympathetic towards the Arab Spring as well. Uh so the, the, the authorities always looked upon him with suspicion, and I think that was the pretext that they needed to p- put him behind bars.
1: So we've spoken about some of the internal factors relating to the Saudi events, from economics to the religious establishment, to some slated reforms to the situation of activists, but we haven't even gone into the additional risks that come with all of the enemies that Mohammed bin Salman has either aggravated or created with his actions that's another layer of risk that we'll discuss in a future episode. Thank you for listening.